you would stand with me for the reading of today's texts. I'll be reading from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. We pray that you will bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word, that your spirit would be active among us, leading us into all truths, comforting our hearts and setting us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So a number of weeks ago, we started off on some teaching around the covenant. We started in Galatians chapter 3, and we talked about Abraham believing the gospel, that Abraham believed God, that he could bring life from the dead, and that God could make him who was without children, he could make him fruitful and multiply him, and that it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then we saw in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, we saw the covenant promises to Abraham being fulfilled in Jesus. And the evidence of that fulfillment was God pouring out His Spirit upon His people. We also saw in that same verse that we model our theology. We model what we believe about God and the way He interacts with us, and the way we interact with and treat our children. And then in another sermon in Acts chapter 2, we talked about having childlike faith, trusting in the finished work of Jesus. That that was the only way to life, to freedom, and to peace. We saw as a whole that we were called to what I'd call singular devotion. The Old Testament uses the word blameless. We are singular in our vision. We are pursuing God. Our eyes are on Him and everything else falls by the wayside. And to do this requires a living sacrifice. We have to lay down our own lives. As I was studying through these earlier sermons, it occurred to me that there was a definite pattern to these covenants. There was a definite pattern to the way that they are communicated to us. And for those of you who like to take notes, the three points today are 
God in His power speaks to His people. Our faithful, covenant-keeping God speaks to His people. Number two, He gives us instructions. Number three, it's kind of two parts. He calls us to obey. And then He promises to be faithful when we don't. As I thought of this pattern, I was reminded of the passage that I just read to you. I don't know if you've ever considered the covenant nature of this passage. If you note, it starts out talking about the disciples. God's people, His covenant people. He's called them to Himself. He has called them to follow Him. Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn. That's our word for disciple. And learn of Me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest under your souls. For My yoke is easy, and My burden is light. And in John, Jesus says to the Jews which believed on Him, If you continue in My Word, then you are My disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This sounds all too familiar to us. These are the same kind of words that are spoken to God's people in the Old Testament. We also see that they met with Jesus on a mountain. This is a common theme in the book of Matthew. We have Jesus appearing on a mountain often. He's there when Satan tempts him. Matthew chapter 4. He delivers the sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus heals on the mountain in Matthew 15. Jesus is transfigured on the mountain in Matthew 17. Jesus speaks to these same disciples on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24. And here in Matthew 28, Jesus is speaking to His disciples from the mountain. What does He say to His disciples? It's sort of the charge and the benediction of the book of Matthew. The people have gathered. Book's about to come to a close. And Jesus from on high says He has received the power and He gives it to His people. And He commands them. He commissions them. He tells them there is a purpose for the church. There is a purpose for His disciples. Jesus is assuming that this gospel story, this 
event that they have gone through with Jesus is motivating. And he tells them of God's purpose for the church. But this is not a new purpose. This is one that is an old purpose, but it is fulfilled through the church. See, Jesus came and spake to them and said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. This is where we see the beginnings of this covenantal structure. We have the Almighty God, the King of the church, identifying Himself. King Jesus has authority over the heavens and the earth and all the nations. He is the one who sends out His church with a message of saving grace. We see this time and time again in the Old Testament. In Genesis 17 we read, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And later in 35, this chapter 35 of Genesis, this is repeated again to Jacob when he changes his name. He says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. We see, we see this same power working through Christ's body. In Ephesians, in the first chapter we read, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ, when He raised Him up from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And He has put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head of all things. Jesus is standing in that position of our faithful, covenant-keeping God and He speaks to His people. And He says, because I have all power, go. Because of this power that I have, I empower you to go, to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In this part of the covenant, we have the covenant king who is giving specific tasks to his covenant people. They are to go, they are to teach all nations. They are to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. And this way of commissioning or commanding the people or the disciples is not new. We see this pattern over and over. We see it in Exodus 7. You shall speak all that I command you. Joshua 1. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. 1 Chronicles 22, 
If you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses, and in Jeremiah 1, everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. So go. Go, move from here. Take the message. Walk in the ways of the Lord. He tells them to teach all nations. To disciple the nations. This harkens back to God making covenant with Abraham. We read this time and time again in Genesis 17 that Abraham was going to be the father of many nations, that my covenant is with him. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of thee. And it will be an everlasting covenant and I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. Be fruitful and multiply. Disciple the nations. Teach the nations. Be fruitful and multiply. It was spoken to Adam. It was spoken to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Even to the entire nation in Leviticus 26. Be fruitful and multiply. We hear it in Jesus' words in John 15. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, and so shall ye be my disciples. This making disciples, this teaching the nations, appears to be a top priority for the church, for you, and for me. If we believe like Abraham, and we believe what Abraham believed, it is that we are the head of many nations to come. Whether those be biological children or those be spiritual children, for surely Abraham's spiritual children far outnumber his biological I want you to think about this. As we work through God's covenants, as we work through His Word to us, as we work through our obligations back to Him, there were a couple themes that kept coming up over and over again. One, I kept taking you back to Genesis chapter 1, reminding you that you are made in God's image. You are made in God's image. Two, that you have been called out. You have been chosen. You have been purchased by God. By the precious blood of Jesus, you are a peculiar possession. The apple of His eye. We should have also noted that we, or you, 
represent generations to come. Thousands of generations to come. So I ask you, do you see yourself in this way? Do you see that you are made in God's image? Do you see that you have been purchased by Jesus' blood? And that you represent thousands of generations to come? That's heady stuff. I also wonder, when you look at your children, do you see the same thing? Do you see God's image in them marred in a similar fashion as yours is marred, your image is marred? Do you see that they are God's special people purchased by His blood? When you are dealing with them, do you think of the thousands of generations that they represent that you are influencing? You know, a quick story on that, on how influential we can be. I know of a gentleman who lives in Middle Tennessee. He's an older gentleman. And he likes to eat butter on things that we normally wouldn't think butter goes on. And I don't mean just a little bit of butter. I mean a lot of butter. Say, chocolate chip cookies. It's really good. (laughs) Brownies. About equal part brownie and butter is to die for. Now, I don't know exactly where he picked this up. Um, I would even guess that his wife fusses at him when he does this. But I know that he has a son-in-law who has picked up this habit. And he has passed it on to his children. And those children, some which are in our congregation, have passed it on to some of us in this congregation. So if we think about something as simple as applying a liberal amount of butter to a chocolate chip cookie, and how quickly that influence spreads. Think about what your influence is on the generations to come. And see, really, that is the heart of discipleship, isn't it? For most of us, trying to do a head count here real quick. Yeah, for most of us, we were first introduced to discipleship by Christian parents. You should consider yourself blessed who were raised by Christian parents who discipled you in the ways of the Lord. For others of us, we came to Christ later and we were influenced and discipled by an older Christian friend or maybe a pastor, or maybe someone who was both. And for some of us, we first got introduced to the concept of discipleship. We first realized that there was a thing called discipleship when we started having children. And we realized, oh my, I'm going to be responsible to teach them something. What is it? I'm going to teach them. That's how I discovered it. It was frightening. Thankfully, we are not left without examples. 
Scripture shows us models of discipleship. But the primary model of discipleship, I believe, is one of following after the one who is discipling you. Paul says, be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. So in this discipleship, we not only speak and teach these nations that are to come, but we model it before them. We can look at Titus chapter 2. And we can see that God says for the older to teach and to model to the younger, to those who are more mature, to those who are less mature. We even see the importance of this and the qualifications around church leadership. Titus 1.9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. A leader in God's church must not only be able to disciple, but he must be a disciple. He must be one who is following. In Timothy, it gets really interesting. It says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Sounds very patriarchal. Sounds very authoritarian. Rule with an iron fist, right? But that's not what it means. One who rules here is one who lives before another. One who models. One who shows care for another with diligence. One who nurtures. One who nurtures. I really like that word. Nurtures. It makes me think of caring for plants. Little feeble plants that need to be protected, that need to be pruned, that need to be fertilized, that need to be cared for. That's our model of discipleship. We nurture. Well, this brings immediate questions, doesn't it? A number of questions even. Who are you discipling? Jesus tells his church to go and teach all nations, to make disciples. Who are you discipling? And as I read in Titus 1, the tougher question may be, who is discipling you? Have you been successful in finding that older, more mature person who has walked with the Lord and can show you the way? 
Or are you being discipled by, oh, pick somebody, Matt Drudge, somebody from Hollywood, fill in the blank. And then the question that made me really uncomfortable this week is who is discipling your children? Or who are you letting disciple your children and your children's children and your children's children's children? But where I really got hung up was on that modeling, that living before, that follow me as I follow Christ. For I, like maybe some of you, I can talk a pretty good game. And in the day-to-day, I'm afraid of what that looks like. I remember, I remember a bumper sticker. And this was very early when Kim and I first started homeschooling. And bumper stickers are usually fairly pathetic. But this one I thought was one of the best I'd ever seen. Maybe you remember seeing it. It said, every home is a school. What do you teach in yours? Every home is a school. What do you teach in yours? And sometimes I wonder if we get our priorities out of line as we are thinking of this discipleship, as we are thinking of training our children and teaching them and educating them. It seems we spend a lot of resources on the education. We sweat a lot of tears. We eat a lot of stress. You homeschooling moms know this, right? Somebody asked me what we're doing for school this year. You get that little feeling in your stomach? But I want to encourage you that it's really pretty simple. I'm afraid the homeschool community has overcomplicated this thing we call discipleship. Or when we go back to Passages like Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's walking and talking and spending time together discussing the things of the Lord and trying to serve the Lord. I'm not opposed to an education. That's not what I'm saying. You probably ought to teach your kids how to read and write. Please teach them how to make change. It's not that hard. So as you disciple your children, as you think about what you are pouring into them, as you think about the nations that they represent, and this goes for children or friends or whoever you're discipling, what are you pouring into them? You know, I was thinking about the baptismal vows, and we, 
we lay it out pretty well here, don't we? Baptismal vows tell us to teach them diligently. Teach them diligently our holy Christian faith. Teach them God's Word. Use the confessions and the catechisms that have been handed down to us. Pray for and with them. Set an example of piety and godliness. Use the means of grace that God has appointed. Sunday worship. Preaching of the Word and the sacraments. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Encouraging them to follow Him. Yes, it tells us to baptize. That's part of the discipling the nations, the teaching them. It also tells us to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We see this way back in Genesis at the beginning. The Lord God commanded the man. He instructed him in the ways of righteousness. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We're told in Genesis 18 that God knew that Abraham would command his children. He would teach them. He would instruct them. He would commission them and his household that they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. See, Abraham was called to serve and worship the Lord. He was called to serve and worship the Lord and to lead and command and commission his children and his servants and his family and his whole household. He was to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. He was to model it before them. He was to nurture them and to encourage them to live out the faith. To follow Him in the faith so that they would teach their children and the generations to follow. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it does tell us the Lord your God commands you to teach them to keep all of His statutes and His commandments that thou and thy son and thy son's sons will prosper all the days of their life and that their days will be prolonged. And that's where we get our phrase, 
Teach them diligently. Fast forward to Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up carries the same kind of language that we've been talking about. It means to nourish, to rear, to cherish as one's own flesh, to train, to disciple, to cherish as one's own flesh, to lay down your life for your disciples. That sounds like Jesus. It can be a little overwhelming when we think about all the commandments and all the statutes and all the judgments. It's a lot of material to cover. But Jesus summed it up this way. We know this passage. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. This is what that singular focus looks like. This is what that whole devotion, that living sacrifice that laying down your life looks like. And the second is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as, there's a, as yourself. And all these hang the law and the prophets. Disciple your neighbor. Shows that you love them. Disciple the nations. Teach them to observe how we express our love for them. The challenge is seeing ourselves in the mirror correctly, as I had stated earlier, that we are in the image, made in the image of God, purchased by God, and that we represent thousands of generations. Maybe a little harder to see that in our children. But what of the neighbor, what of the meth head next door? What of the lost young man who lives next door to me who tried to kill himself in my backyard on Tuesday? What of him? How do I love him? How do I disciple him? You all have that neighbor or that family member or that coworker. Is it hard to see the image of God in them? Is it hard for you to see that maybe, just maybe, the meth head next door is really the elect? And that he, in fact, represents thousands of generations that God will be faithful to.
we are told to teach others to observe all that Jesus commanded. That they should love the Lord their God. And that they should love their neighbors themselves. That word observe is used several different ways. It means to guard, to keep, to retain, to protect. Jesus says it this way, If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and he will come unto me and make our abode with him. He that loveth me, he that loveth me not keepeth my sayings, the word which he hears, not mine, but the Father which sent me. Peter says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're supposed to keep God's Word. Have you failed to model faithfulness before your disciples? I have. Have you failed to teach and instruct them diligently? I have. So then what hope is there for us? Peter says that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. This passage ends with, look, behold, lo, I am with you always. The great I Am, our faithful covenant God, says He is with us to the end. And that's the third part of the covenant, isn't it? That we are called to obey. That we are called to labor for the Lord. And that He blesses us when we do so. And that in His power and in His might and in His mercy and in His grace, He is faithful to us when we are weak and when we fall short of the mark. So I want you to remember what you are called to today. You are called to follow the Almighty God to disciple the nations, baptizing and teaching. To follow that great, mighty, covenant-keeping God standing on the mountain, saying, all power has been given to me, and I give it to you, and you are to go. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child 
and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Let's pray. Father, we know that it is only through your love and mercy and grace, through your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to be with us, that our sins are forgiven, that we are brought into your kingdom, that we are ordained to a task, that we've been given newness of life to walk in it. Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your instruction. We thank you that you are with us always, even unto the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.